and gentlemen, welcome to Exhibition History, the place to be for the greatest stories the world has ever known. Join us for each sword episode where we cover the greatest adventures and voyages of the past. Exhibition History, Episode 4 SMS Emden, The Swan of the East. In the early months of the year 1914, tensions exploded all over Europe. World powers from London to Leningrad all rushed to arms as conflict seemed just around the corner. Among them, the newly minted German Empire looked to its imperial borders. Composed of a collection of formerly independent German states only unified in 1871, the empire found itself hard-pressed to defend its European borders, and even more ill-prepared to adequately protect its far-flung overseas colonies. Forced to enter the imperialist scrambles for Africa and Asia well behind its competitors on account of its late unification, the German empire was lagging far behind the other European powers in regard to its global naval capabilities. As a result, the build-up in tensions that preluded the opening of hostilities was quite alarming for a certain Karl von Müller. Holding the rank of lieutenant commander, by the summer of 1914, von Müller had had a decent career in the German Navy, having spent his time on various train ships and serving as a signal officer, a gunnery officer, and as a member of the German naval staff. Though a competent and reliable naval officer by all accounts, his time in service thus far had been fairly stable and rather unremarkable. Von Müller had seen minor action against Chinese rebels along the Yangtze River, but otherwise, had spent the entirety of his career tending merely to naval garrison duties. However, his appointment as commanding officer of the SMS Emden would take his career to new heights. Now, the SMS Emden may not have been a top-of-the-line battleship, but she certainly wasn't a mere fishing boat either. Commissioned in 1909, she was one of the Dresden class of light cruisers, of which only two were built, her sister ship giving the class its namesake. The Emden had a displacement of 4,200 long tons, a range of 3,760 nautical miles, a top speed of 23.5 knots, was armed with 10 10.5-centimeter guns and two torpedo tubes, and boasted a crew of 361 enlisted sailors and officers. Admittedly, all those numbers probably mean little to you. I assume most of you aren't well-versed in historical naval specifications. And that's okay, because I'm not either. I'd show you a picture if I could, but this is a podcast, not a YouTube video. But regardless, the key takeaway is this. The Emden was not a heavyweight fighter by any means, but she was quick and for her size, was more than capable of both giving and receiving considerable amounts of punishment. Her speed and armament were perfect for the role of commerce raiding, and the harassment of enemy shipping, something von Müller was well aware of and eager to put to use, if absolutely necessary. With war on the horizon, Karl von Müller knew he had a decision to make. Stationed in Tsingtao, China, now Qingdao on the southern side of the Shandong Peninsula, he and the crew of the Emden were attached to the German East Asia Squadron, a small flotilla on the far side of the globe, a world away from Germany's primary interests in Europe. As a matter of fact, Tsingtao was one of only a handful of German possessions in the entirety of Eastern Asia and the Pacific. To make matters worse, the rest of the fleet was out of port and in the vicinity of the Marianas Islands. Isolated from any support, the Emden was at risk of being bottled up in port at the start of hostilities and picked off by the nearby Japanese, a public ally of the British Empire and a potential enemy of Germany. Weighing his options, Karl von Müller thought it best to put out to sea where he could better position himself for commerce raiding in the event that the diplomatic talks in Europe fell through. And, spoiler alert, they did. Steaming out to sea on July 31st, 1914, von Müller soon received word of the German declaration of war on France and Russia. His country was now at war, and von Müller wasted no time joining the war effort, steering the Emden towards the Korean coast in a bid to intercept Russian merchant shipping. Two days later, the Emden would stumble upon what her crew believed was a Russian cruiser and proceed to give chase, the Russian vessel going full steam to escape the Emden's grasp, desperate to outrun its pursuer. Unwilling to let the chase draw out, 
Von Mueller ordered the firing of a dozen warning shots, frightening the Russian crew as the explosive ordnance soared overhead and landed all around them. The Russian cruiser slowed to a stop and was immediately boarded by the Emden's crew. The Russian ship, as it turned out, was not a cruiser, but in fact was the 3,500-ton merchant ship Riazan, and though she had no cargo aboard, her capture was the first German trophy of war seized from the Russian Empire in the entirety of the First World War. Not bad for an opening act. The Emden would take her prize back to Tsingtao, where the Riazan would be converted from a merchant vessel into an armed commerce raider renamed the Cormoran. As a bit of a side note, the Cormoran's journey in the war would see her pursued by the Japanese shortly after their entry into the war on August 23rd. Run almost to the point where she was out of fuel, the vessel was forced to take shelter in Opera Harbor, Guam, then held by the neutral United States. There, she would remain for much of the conflict, as the governor of Guam, who was partial to the Allies, refused to give the Cormoran enough fuel to make it to friendly waters. Upon the United States' entrance to the war in 1917, the Cormoran was trapped in the harbor and sunk. As a result, the scudding of the Cormoran and the capture of her crew would be one of the United States' own first victories of the war. But I digress. Let us return to the Emden. In early August, von Müller finally received words from Vice Admiral Maximilian von Spee, commander of the German East Asia Squadron. He was to steam immediately for the island of Pagan in the Marianas Islands and regroup with the rest of the squadron. Arriving on August 12th, it was just in the nick of time. Before the end of the month, Japan had not only joined the war on the side of the Allies, but had also immediately began a blockade of Tsingtao Harbor and had themselves launched a fleet with the sole purpose of tracking down and annihilating the German East Asia Squadron. Considering their options, the German naval officers met to plan their next move. Maximilian von Spee, it was decided, would lead the German East Asia Squadron to the relatively peaceful waters off South America in an effort to reach the Atlantic with the goal of returning to Germany and reinforcing the German Empire's high seas fleet. They need all the ships they could muster if they wished to challenge the British head-on in the North Sea. The Emden, however, would not join them. Knowing his ship was the fastest in the fleet and well-suited to the task, von Müller put forth the idea for the squadron to leave him behind as they made for the South Pacific, arguing his ship alone could wreak great havoc on Allied shipping in the area. Should anyone pursue, he could merely slip away. Agreeing to the proposition, von Spee and the East Asia Squadron departed for South America, leaving behind the Emden and the collier Marcomania, a coal ship used to ensure the Emden had a continual source of fuel. With the departure of von Spee and his ships, the two vessels, the Emden and Marcomania, were now entirely on their own. The Emden set sail on a southwesterly course, the Marcomania close behind, sailing into the waters of the Dutch East Indies, referred to today as Indonesia. As the Netherlands was a neutral power, von Müller attempted to use their neutrality to acquire additional coal for his operation. His efforts, unfortunately for the Germans, raised ire from the Dutch, who were fearful of warranting Japanese aggression upon their possessions. Sending the coastal defense ship Torp as a show of force, the Dutch drove the Emden out of the Java Sea. Making for the open waters of the Indian Ocean, the Emden sailed south between the Lesser Sunda Islands, all the while picking up strange radio traffic just ahead. To the dismay of the Germans on board, Blocking their path was a lone armored British cruiser, the heavily armed HMS Hampshire, built to destroy any vessel less than a battleship in single combat. Knowing the Emden couldn't challenge the Hampshire in a solo engagement, especially in such narrow waters, von Müller turned to cunning. Rigging a false fourth funnel out of wood and fabric, the Dresden class of German light cruisers had only three, whereas the British cruisers had four, the Emden disguised herself as a British cruiser, with a whole four funnels, and, well within view on account of the narrow strait, slipped right on past the Hampshire who sat idly by, never the wiser. Having just passed under the enemy's nose, she entered the Indian Ocean. Sailing westwards before changing her heading to north-northwest, von Müller steered the Emden for the Bay of Bengal, aiming for the exposed juggler of Allied trade, the heavily trafficked waters of British Imperial India. 
At this point, the Emden had only seen difficult circumstances since the capture of the Riazan. Forced to keep a low profile, turned away by the Dutch, and having dodged the British, her goal of plundering Allied shipping was going nowhere fast. Her crew seemed doomed to fail, but their luck, however, would soon change. Off the western coast of Ceylon, today modern Sri Lanka, the Emden stumbled upon an unidentified vessel, steaming north along the Colombo-Calcutta shipping lane. Quickly overtaking her, the Emden successfully intercepted this lone ship, only to find it to be the Greek collier, Pontoporos. As Greece was currently neutral in the conflict, it would be a direct violation of the Hague Conventions, and thus, a war crime, for the Emden to act against the Greek vessel in any way, to include the seizure of the valuable cargo aboard, most notably, the coal. But Karl von Müller would not simply let the ship leave, oh no. He was far too cunning and far too low on supplies to just sit back and let that happen. Instead, he essentially chartered the Pontoporos, paying the crew on board not only for their cargo, but for both them and the ship to join him for the time being. Technically, I suppose this chartering could be considered under duress on account of the Greek crew staring down the barrels of the Emden's guns, but eh, show me the law against it. Seems pretty clever to me. Now joined by two colliers, the Marcomanni Stone Company, the Emden took off for the north, intent on ravaging the shipping along the eastern Indian coast. The presence of the Emden was a complete surprise to the Allied powers, most notably to the British. The flight of the German East Asia squadron to the Atlantic was well known, and the fact that a lone light cruiser was challenging British naval supremacy in the Indian Ocean was nigh inconceivable. This rude awakening for the British Admiralty came in the form of a series of sudden losses, as the Emden utilized her speed and false fourth funnel to catch Allied merchant vessels completely unaware and employing her guns to silence any resistance. In a single run up the Colombo-Calcutta shipping lane, she scored five prizes, or five captures, in quick succession. She would start by sinking the freighter Indus, intercepting, boarding, and looting the vessel of all food and provisions before sending her to the bottom of the waves. Next, she would capture the troop transport Lovat, taking anything useful before then sinking her as well. Punching north still, she came upon and captured the freighter Kabinga. Their brig overflowing with Allied prisoners on account of the past seizures, Von Müller enrolled the vessel into his fleet to serve as a prisoner transport, helmed by a German skeleton crew to manage and oversee the ever-increasing numbers of POWs. Von Müller would follow up the Kabinga enrollment with the seizure of the collier Killen, capturing the coal on board to restock the Marcomannian Pontoporos. Once looted, the Killen too was sunk. Continue up the Indian coast towards modern-day Bangladesh, the Enid would see her fifth lightning victory, capturing and sinking the freighter Diplomat just south of Calcutta. Before we continue on, I want to take a quick moment to highlight the character of Karl von Müller, as I believe he more than deserves it. Throughout his actions in the Bay of Bengal, von Müller proved to be a compassionate commander to his defeated foes. He had in place strict standing orders to take on any and all survivors of every captured ship before it would be sunk, retaining both the lives and honor of countless sailors. When the Emden became inundated with prisoners, von Müller's addition of the Kabinga increased the footprint, so to speak, of a clandestine raider force, placing both himself and his men in far greater jeopardy. Where other commanders would have retained their low profile by sinking the opposition with all hands, von Müller actively went out of his way to save whatever lives he could, German, British, Indian, or otherwise. Those unfortunate souls who perished in defense of ship and crew were given proper burials at sea, receiving full military honors. Nearing the port of Calcutta on September 13th, the Emden intercepted the Italian freighter Loredano. Still a neutral power at this stage of the war, the Italian vessel and her cargo would not be seized. Rather, von Müller offered to pay the Loredano to take aboard his large quantity of British prisoners and bring them into port, hoping to scuttle the Kabinga once emptied. The Italian captain, however, refused, possibly fearing the event would cause a diplomatic incident. Italy, after all, as stated, was a neutral nation. 
but the captain still certainly had his sympathies. Returning to Calcutta, the captain of the Lord Dono immediately reported the whereabouts of the Emden to the British authorities in the area, truly alerting them to her presence. Now warned of the snake in the grass, the British Admiralty leapt into action. But meanwhile, back at sea, Von Müller decided that it was probably high time to release the captive sailors. The large number of POWs were too resource-intensive to maintain, and the Kabinga only served to slow down the convoy and devour precious coal. Thus, a decision was made. As the Kabinga sailed west for Calcutta, now crewed by freed Britons, the Emden headed east towards Rangoon. Continuing her unbroken streak of piracy, the Emden would bag a few more prizes, including the British freighter Clan Matheson, carrying, among other things, a number of luxury automobiles and a prize racehorse. Outside the range of any German radio transmissions, the Emden largely operated in a state of informational darkness, utilizing captured newspapers and questioning the detained crews to try and piece together what was happening in the greater world. In this manner, through some newspapers and a run-in with a neutral Norwegian vessel, Von Müller and the crew were hit with two bits of news. One good, one bad. The good news. Due to the Emden's success, British shipping in the Bay of Bengal had been almost entirely crippled, down approximately 60%. This had been exactly what Von Müller wished to achieve, and the Emden, a lone raider, had delivered striking results in an equally as striking short period of time, almost single-handedly shutting down merchant shipping in eastern India. Yet, the bad news struck fear into the Emden's captain and crew. They were no longer alone. In the absence of civilian freighters and merchant vessels, a combined Anglo-Japanese squadron had taken to the seas. The squadron, comprised of the HMS Hampshire, the same HMS Hampshire the Emden had stealthily avoided while exiting the Java Sea, the light cruiser, HMS Yarmouth, and the protected Japanese cruiser Chikuma was dispatched into the Indian Ocean with one goal, to end the Emden's reign of terror. Located south of Rangoon off the coast of southern Burma, and with intelligence that the Allied squadron was moving north in his direction, Von Müller refused to allow the Emden to be caught. Releasing the Pontoporos to reconvene at a later date, the collier was far too slow to keep around, Von Müller changed his heading and drove the Emden west, sailing her into the relatively safe waters of the open bay of Bengal. But what could they do? The juicy merchant ships that were so numerous just weeks ago were now few and far between, and returning to the rich seas of the east was impossible on account of the hostile squadron. Well, life is strange, and as it turned out, a sailor aboard the Emden had once worked in the British-controlled city of Madras, a bustling port on India's southeastern coast. Describing the port, he spoke of large oil tanks lying ashore that were entirely unprotected and were conceivably exposed to any guns that could range them. The opportunity was far too good to pass up. On the night of September 22, 1914, the Emden approached the port of Madras. Still wearing her false fourth funnel in disguise, she entered the port at 20 hundred hours without drawing fire from any of the defensive shore batteries. Though a blackout order of all coastal population centers had been in effect on account of the known danger the Emden presented, the city of Madras did not heed the terms and, as a result, was consequentially lit up in stark contrast to the night sky. The half-dozen tanks of oil sat illuminated on the dockyard, towering over the nearby port facilities, and, with no warship to protect them, could not have been a better target. Advancing to within 2,700 meters, Von Müller maneuvered the Emden to point her entire port side, her left side, in the direction of the oil tanks. Further illuminating the area with a spotlight, the Emden fired two volleys so that the gunners could find their range, before then opening up with a withering broadside after withering broadside, loosing nearly 150 shells upon the exposed tanks. The oil inside was rapidly lit aflame, creating a tremendous inferno, a beacon alarming all around to the raid and to the dangers threatening the port. The crewmen of the shore batteries rushed to their stations, still in a state of disbelief and confusion to the circumstances they found themselves in. Slowly but surely, their guns began to fire, though their shots fell far short of the Emden's position. 
Their fire was far too little, far too late. As suddenly as the attack began, it had ended. Putting its engine and boilers to work, the Emden sped off into the darkness. Behind her, Indian and British personnel rushed back and forth across Madras, doing all they could to fight the blaze, let it claim their precious port. Though the bombardment of Madras was a quick, small-scale engagement, a minor event dwarfed by the opening battles of the war then occurring in Europe, the raid was no less effective. In the Emden's wake, the port of Madras was now in ruins, with anywhere between 350,000 to half a million gallons of invaluable fuel just up in flames. Recalling the event, von Müller wrote, quote, I had this shown in view simply as a demonstration to arouse interest among the Indian population, to disturb English commerce, to diminish English prestige, unquote. In those regards, he was potently successful, and with the Bay of Bengal now sorely ravaged, the Emden headed south. Her targets this time were the valuable shipping lanes at the southern tip of the Indian subcontinent and to the west of Ceylon. To avoid any British patrols, the Emden hugged the eastern coast of the island, looping to the south and then west coast before sailing north to surprise the Allied shipping still present in the area. Mirroring her earlier string of victories, the Emden quickly claimed numerous prizes, four freighters in total, the King Lud, Timerick, Foyle, and Griffivald. Once again, von Müller would exhibit his renowned character, treating prisoners with dignity and respect before loading them aboard the Griffivald, the new prison ship, where he would then eventually let them all go. Although the Marcomania was still falling close behind, the Emden filled the gap left by the Pontoporos with a seized collier Buresque and its 6,000 tons of high-grade coal. Rather than being chartered, the formerly British vessel was outright captured and manned by a German prize crew. After intercepting yet another freighter, the Ribera, von Müller received intelligence reports that the British Admiralty was officially doubling their efforts in order to bring him to heel. Momentarily content with his work thus far, and wishing to escape the narrow confines of the shipping lanes, Von Müller let the Marcomania and Buresk loose, ordering the two to split up and hide out in the open water, but to return immediately when called upon. Now alone, the Emden embarked on a somewhat risky venture. After such a long time at sea, she was in desperate need of repair, but there was a glaring problem. Any port in the area capable of such a job was held firmly in Allied hands. Well, almost any port. There was, perhaps, on a technicality, one exception. Once again entering the safety of the high seas, the Emden steamed south towards the small, remote British island colony of Diego Garcia. Emphasis on remote. As the Emden pulled into the atoll's quiet port, the German cruiser wasn't met with gunfire, but rather cheers and celebration. Located over 1,100 miles away from the nearest landmass, Diego Garcia and its inhabitants were so isolated from the world and its events that not a single one of them knew that their overlord, the British Empire, was at war with Germany. As the Emden docked and its sailors peacefully disembarked, in Europe, Germany and the Allies were engaged in a series of short but brutal running battles as each side tried to outflank the other before reaching the English Channel, an event which had already claimed the lives of tens of thousands on both sides. But to the Islanders, this race of the sea, as it was known, was non-existent. There was no war in Diego Garcia. Oblivious to the enemy's ship in their midst, the inhabitants set to work on repairs for the Emden as von Müller and his crew enjoyed a few days of rest and relaxation in a tropical paradise. The German sailors, as a thank you before their departure, even went so far to repair the engine of a local islander's personal boat before setting off once again. On the 10th of October, the Emden left Diego Garcia and cruised north into the blue waters off India's southwestern coast. The move proved to be quite fortuitous, as the HMS Hampshire was hot on the Emden's heels, having captured the Marcomania on the 12th, utilizing intelligence gleaned through the collier's crew that the Emden was last seen headed south in the direction of Diego Garcia. 
Down a collier, she was now somewhat deprived of the vital coal she needed to sustain her raids, and with the British gaining ground, the noose seemed to be tightening ever so much around her neck. Nevertheless, Von Müller and his dauntless crew would not be deterred. Again west of Ceylon, the Emden scored another half-dozen victories including their greatest prize of the war, the Troilus, owned by the prestigious Blue Funnel Line, responsible for much of Britain's merchant shipping, whose cargo alone amounted to over 100 million in today's dollars. Flush with victory, though still wary of the threat the Hampshire presented to the south, Von Müller knew it was time to move to a new area of operations. But where to? Unable and unwilling to remain in place, he chose to strike back east, across the Indian Ocean where the Allies would least expect it, the Crown Colony of Penang. Located on the western Malaysian coast, the town of Penang possessed a bustling port, seeing a large amount of Allied naval traffic in the opening days of the war. Military merchant vessels had come and gone in a state of relative ease, unbothered by world events. True, there was a German pirate out at sea, but she was all the way to the south of India. Surely there'd be plenty of forewarning should the raider decide to try their luck at Penang. Unbeknownst to the denizens of Penang, however, the Emden had mastered the art of traveling thousands of nautical miles unseen and unheard. Early in the morning of October 28th, the Emden silently approached the port. Her false fourth funnel still in place, she was again mistaken for a British vessel, and still avoided any scrutiny. Arrived in Penang, she caught sight of a harbor full of silent ships and sleeping crews, first and foremost, the Russian cruiser Zemchuk. As luck would have it, the captain of the Zemchuk was away from his vessel, occupied with his local mistress in the luxurious eastern and oriental hotel. As a result, should the guns needed to be brought to bear, the Zemchuk could only rely on a dozen individual shells. Not a single Russian sailor was prepared for what was about to happen. Approaching the Russian cruiser, the Emden raised the flag of the German Empire and released a torpedo aimed right for the Zemchug's stern. With no lookout posted, there was no one around to warn the vessel of its impending doom. The torpedo struck the rear of the Zemchug, tearing a hole in her armored hull that was quickly filled with a flowing onrush of thousands of gallons of water. Shaking and horribly confused, the alarmed Russian sailors ran to their battle stations. Swinging around its quarry, the Emden sailed to within 150 meters of the Zemchug before releasing a second torpedo, the Emden's guns firing simultaneously and sending a withering starboard broadside straight into the Russian cruiser at close range. As the Zemchug listed to her side, reeling from the salvo, she was struck by the Emden's second torpedo, which had hurriedly closed the gap and punched the Zemchug amidships, igniting her magazine. A great explosion erupted from the belly of the cruiser, throwing a great fireball into the air and illuminating the entire harbor for miles around, splitting the Zemchug in half and throwing a shower of men and debris alike into the water. Awoken by the cacophony of the attack, all the Russian captain could do from his hotel balcony was watch as the Zemchug's bow and stern, now separate, slipped below the burning waves. Pressing further into the harbor, the Emden found herself in the sights of a French warship, the cruiser d'Eberville, who, though shaken by the ambush, proceeded to open fire. Unwilling to risk his ship in the pitch confines of the narrow port, Von Müller steered the Emden hard starboard, dodging the incessant but inaccurate French shelling as he made for the open ocean. But just as the Emden left Penang, she happened upon the French destroyer Musket, steaming slowly into the port and unwittingly stumbling into the raid. Caught entirely unawares, her and her crew were by no means ready to fight. But nonetheless, the Emden, its crew already hot on the trigger, drew the warship in their sights and raked the destroyer with precise and deadly fire, making short work of the vessel and sending her to the bottom of the sea. The d'Iberville, despite having already shown its willingness to fight, was still moored and couldn't offer any form of chase. Watching from the bridge, the French officers aboard the d'Iberville could only swear as the Emden slipped away unscathed yet again. 
Total casualties from the raid amounted to 88 killed aboard the Zemchug and 44 aboard the Musket. As the Emden sprinted away from Penang, Von Mueller did take the time to pick up the survivors of the Musket, plucking them from the Strait of Malacca, though three of the men later died of their wounds, receiving burials at sea with full military honors. Two days later, the surviving French sailors were left aboard an intercepted British steamer, spared by the Emden on the grounds that the vessel would transport the prisoners to the Dutch East Indies. The steamer, unable to say no on account of the Emden's guns, accepted the terms and shortly after released the prisoners to Dutch colonial authorities on the island of Sumatra. Von Mueller had other matters at hand to contend with, least of which the prisoners. The Battle of Penang made headlines across the globe, yet another attack by the German Phantom Raider. It was now evident enough that no shipping was safe in the Indian Ocean, regardless of location. Humiliated and suffering a sharp decline in the vital transport of both men and material, the Allies, especially the British, knew that they had no other choice but to rid the world's oceans of the German menace. Every available warship was sent into the Indian Ocean to bring the Emden to heel. As successful as the raid on Penang was, in the long run, it served only to draw even more attention to the Emden's exploits, and would unfortunately prove to be the high watermark of the Emden's career. But a ship, captain, and crew with such a striking track record don't just silently fade away into the night. The Emden made haste away from Penang as fast as her boilers could get her, well aware that every allied ship in the area was now on a high alert and on the prowl. On the run, Von Mueller decided that the best course of action was to attack Direction Island, the site of an important British radio and communication station located to the south of the Malay Peninsula by some 10 days of sailing. A part of the Cocos Island group, a pair of atolls composed of 27 coral islands, this idyllic vacation destination would soon see itself turned into a watery grave. Reaching Direction Island just after midnight on November 9th, 1914, Von Mueller quickly readied a landing party consisting of 53 men with the task of rowing to shore, landing, and silencing the radio station with all due haste. Led by the Emden's first officer, the fearless Helmuth von Mueke, the party did just that, departing the Emden at 0600 hours and seizing the radio station without any resistance, demolishing the facility's communications equipment, undersea cables, and the island's main wireless mast, which unfortunately took a case of fine scotch with it. But despite the seemingly apparent success, von Mueke was too late. As von Mueller was sending forth the landing party, he had sent an encrypted transmission to the Baresk, requesting it regroup with the Emden in preparation for the next movement. Although encrypted, the message was intercepted by the communication station, raising red flags among the personnel manning the hardware. The British personnel outside, meanwhile, had spotted some mystery ship off the coast and debated whether it was the Emden or the HMS Minotaur, a British cruiser known to be nearby. Owing to the keen eye of the garrison's medical officer, the Emden's false fourth funnel was noted, and the telegraphist on duty, already tipped off something was wrong, immediately went to work on broadcasting a distress signal. Though the signal was almost immediately jammed by the Emden before finally being snuffed out altogether by the landing party shortly after, the signal had lived just long enough to have already reached a nearby Australian convoy, whose commander dispatched a light cruiser HMAS Sydney to investigate. Lookouts on the Emden spotted smoke on the horizon 0900 hours, originally believing it to originate from the Buresk, which was known to already be on her way. However, just 15 minutes later, the truth would be revealed, as the incoming vessel was identified as some sort of British warship. As the crew ran to their assigned positions and the Emden readied for battle, numerous signals were sent to the landing party, desperately trying to recall them lest they get left behind, but Von Mucke and his men were too slow. Facing imminent danger, at 0930 hours, Von Mueller made the call, ordering the Emden to raise its anchor and sail in the direction of this new threat, abandoning the landing party on the island. Von Mucke and his men could do little more than watch, as the Emden sailed off to the fight of her life. 
moving to engage this mysterious threat, Von Mueller almost certainly took some time to reflect on the decision he had made. The crew of the Emden had time and again proved themselves to be resolute professionals, more than capable of taking on and triumphing over any obstacle that stood in their way. Yet the same could not be said about their ship. Though nimble, she was still just a light cruiser, and although she had treated the sailors well on the high seas, her success had lied in her speed, not in her firepower. And despite her strengths, the Emden was both out-armored and outgunned by the Sydney that lay ahead of her. Coming to blows with the enemy vessel was a course of action the Emden may not survive, but it was a risk Von Mueller had to take. The only alternative was to abandon the landing party on the island to the enemy. And that was simply not an option. They had to fight. And as the Sydney entered the range of the Emden's guns, any introspection was tossed aside to meet the battle at hand. The Sydney made the first move, turning parallel to the Emden's course and keeping the two separated by a distance of approximately 9,500 meters. At such a long range, the Australian officers in the Sydney's bridge believed their vessel to be well out of range of the Emden's guns. But the German gunners had other ideas and quickly bracketed the Sydney, firing both ahead and behind the Australian warship with the first two volleys, before landing home with the third, destroying the aft fire control station and killing three sailors. Von Müller knew the best chance the Emden had was to fight as tenaciously as possible, and the crew knew it too. Her gunners, experts of their craft, fired salvo after salvo at 10 second increments, aiming to make up for their relatively small guns by overwhelming the Sydney with sheer volume of fire, their bodies breaking under the continued pressure within the sweltering confines of the turrets, spurned on only by adrenaline and the primordial desire to survive. Aiming to brawl, the Emden closed the gap between the two vessels, attempting to get close enough to unleash a devastating torpedo salvo. The Australian gunners aboard the Sydney, however, had finally found their range, and raked the Emden with a devastating enfilade from her six-inch guns, knocking out one of the Emden's forward guns and killing all at its station. Forced to back off, the Emden and the Sydney traded volleys before Von Mueller moved to close the distance again at full throttle. For his efforts, the Emden was once more subjected to a brutal cannonade, killing many aboard and damaging the steering, pushing the Emden away. But Von Mueller and the crew would not be deterred so easily. The Emden turned once more again to close the range, seeming to head so violently that the Sydney herself was forced back, desperate to avoid any possible torpedoes. Turning hard to starboard, she let loose a lucky salvo, as one shell found its way through the Emden's armor and into the ready and primed ammunition stored deep within her hull, igniting a blaze near one of the starboard gun turrets. Undeterred by the firestorm and seeing how close they had gotten on their third try, Baumler decided to give it another go and press the Emden to get back into torpedo range but this time, it proved to be her last. Having more than caught on to the Emden's tactics, the Sydney quickly danced back, removing herself from torpedo range while continuing to wreak havoc aboard the Emden with a continual barrage of six-inch shells. Sailing under a hail of explosives, the Emden received hit after hit, losing each of her remaining turrets and rendering her unable to return fire. At approximately 10.45 in the morning, Von Mueller knew that they had no choice but to throw in the towel. Three of the Emden's funnels had been shot clean off, including the fake one, and anything above the waterline was riddled with shell holes and consumed by devastation. Gazing upon his vessel from the shredded superstructure, Von Mueller could hardly recognize a ship he had once known. Once the pride of the German navy, it was now nothing more than twisted metal obscured by black, oily smoke, broken only by the eruption of a new inferno. Fearing for the lives of his crew and aiming to save all he could, Von Mueller refused to let the Emden sink. Withdrawing from the engagement, he put the Emden's speed to use one last time, peeling away from the Sydney and making for North Keeling Island. At 11.15am, the Emden made her last act as a fighting warship, riding the waves onto the sandy coast and beaching herself on the soft sand, ensuring no German sailors would be lost to the sea. Unfortunately for the crew of the Emden, the destruction was not yet over. 
as the Emden ran herself aground upon North Keeling Island, the Sydney turned to intercept the Baresque, who had unwittingly found herself wandering smack dab into the tail end of a shootout that had already been lost. Scuttling in the collier as the Sydney approached, the Australians claimed the vessel and picked up the crew before turning around to finally see about the Emden's demise. Coming upon their foe, the Sydney signaled the Emden, asking if they had surrendered. As fate would have it, not only had the Emden's wireless communications been destroyed in the duel, but so too had her codebooks, leaving the crew unable to respond. The Sydney, not receiving any transmissions concerning German surrender, and noting the flag of the German Empire still flying high on the Emden's mast, assumed the Emden was still in the fight. Bringing her guns to bear, the Sydney peppered the defeated Emden with additional shellfire, before, at last, the German flag came down and a white one was raised in its place. The SMS Emden, the Swan of the East, had at long last been defeated. All in all, the damage received by the Sydney was relatively light. Though the Emden's shells were numerous, the Sydney had only been hit a total of 16 times and had suffered a loss of only 4 sailors dead and another 16 wounded. Winston Churchill himself, yes, that Winston Churchill, then First Lord of the Admiralty, personally sent a message to the Sydney following the battle, championing the crew and congratulating the Australians with their, and I quote, brilliant entry into the war, unquote. I'd like to apologize to my British audience on account of that horrible accent. The Emden, on the other hand, was a shadow of its former self. Over the course of the battle, she had received over 100 recorded hits, an astonishing number for such a small ship, and a testament to the bravery and steadfastness of the crew. Having left Tsingtao only three months prior, with 361 officers and enlisted sailors, a full third of them now lay dead. The survivors of the Emden were picked up by Australian forces shortly after the battle's conclusion, and were later dispersed throughout the British Empire. The Balmuller and the rest of the surviving officers were taken to the island of Malta, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, while the surviving enlisted sailors were interned in Singapore. The wounded were sent to Australia for proper medical care, before themselves were sent to various military prisons across the Australian countryside. In the various POW camps, the crew of the Emden would wait out the war, earning their freedom at war's end, and eventually all returning home to Germany by the year 1920. Okay, so Von Mueller and the officers are in Malta, the wounded in Australia, and the rest of the enlisted sailors are in Singapore. But that isn't everyone. If you've been keeping track, you may have noticed that there is still one element from the Emden's crew has been left unaccounted for. Having watched the naval battle from the beach of Direction Island, Von Mueller and his landing party of 53 sailors watched in horror as the Emden met her demise. Knowing they'd be next, the sailors left the beach and took up what defensive positions they could across the tiny little island, their rifles and machine guns trained upon the Sydney, painfully awaiting the assault they knew was bound to come. But as luck would have it, no attack ever materialized. The Australians were far more than happy with the victory of the Emden, and of the German sailors taken prisoner, not a single one so much as even whispered about the landing party. To the Australians, Von Mucke and his men simply did not exist. As the Sydney faded off into the horizon, Von Mucke and his men took stock of their situation. Though they were now free of immediate threats after what had seemed like almost an eternity, this was no time to relax. Now marooned, the sailors found themselves in dire straits. There they were in the middle of the Indian Ocean, lightly armed upon a hostile island, their friends all dead or captured. They had no food, no water, and no real protection. But damn it, they had grit. Lying in the harbor was an old three-masted sailing schooner, the Aisha. Originally supposed to hold only a crew of six, she would soon find herself crewed by 47 more. A vessel far past her prime, her wooden hull was rotted through, and her bilge pump was inoperable, meaning she was continually taking on water and in a permanent state of sinking. The Germans, in their predicament, had no other options. She would have to do. 
Stocking up on what food the Brits on the island could offer, the entire 53-man contingent piled into the Aisha, unfurled the sails, and took to the seas. Subject to changing winds, Vamuke pointed her towards the Dutch-held port of Padang on the western Indonesian coast, battling the roaring waves, dangerous reefs, and continually bailing out the ship the entire way. Keeping most of the sailors below deck, Vamuke and a handful of the most ragged-looking men were the only ones who stayed above. Adorned in filthy clothing and sporting long, greasy hair and thick, wild beards, Vamuke felt confident that any passing vessel would see them only as, quote, belonging to the war fleet of one of the island kingdoms of the Pacific, unquote. And as it so happened, the disguise proved useful, as on one occasion, an eye destroyer came right up to them and, only meters away, did nothing as a strange vessel sailed past. For weeks, they lived like sardines aboard the decrepit ship, sustaining themselves off of the few provisions they had and quenching their thirst with rainwater caught with an extra sail. Having sailed for countless miles, suffering great hardships and triumphing over any and all expectations, they finally reached Padang in late November 1914. But Padang, as I had already mentioned, was a Dutch possession, and the Netherlands, as I had also mentioned, was neutral in the conflict, a stance which they'd hold for the entirety of the war. To protect themselves, the Dutch upheld strict laws on neutrality that included disallowing the docking rights of any warring party. We saw this with the Emden in the Java Sea earlier in the episode. The Aisha, though not a proper warship in her own right, was nonetheless crewed by German sailors, meaning, legally, she had been commissioned as the SMS Aisha, and, flag or not, was officially tied to the German Empire. As such, the Dutch only granted her permission to stay in the port for 24 hours before the diplomatic pressures of the age would force her back out to sea and on the move again. Upon entering the port, Famuke and his men would have to act fast. Famuke did what he could to acquire additional supplies, everything from food and water to clothing and sea charts, but despite his efforts, the Dutch refused to allow any aid to reach the Germans. They would not allow their neutrality to be threatened for any reason, no matter how bad supplies were needed. Seeking a solution, Vamuke and a few others immediately made for the German consulate in the city, who, tied down by red tape, was not allowed to help. Well, at least, not officially. After the meeting between von Mucke and the consul delegation, where the sailors were told nothing could be done, von Mucke received a secret note from the German consul himself. On it were handwritten coordinates, the location of a nearby German merchant ship waiting for them to the south. Boarding the Aisha once more, von Mucke and the sailors made course for the coordinates, armed only with an unreliable sea chart composed of cobbled-together almanacs, guesswork, and what could be recalled from verbal descriptions of the area. Sailing for some time, by the grace of God, they found her. Spotting the merchant vessel choicing, the Germans pulled up alongside her. Vamuke and his men were taken aboard, bringing what little supplies they had, and once all were accounted for, the Aisha was scuttled. Steaming away from the Aisha, the doomed vessel seemed to keep pace for some time, following the choicing as if hesitant to leave her former crew. Stopping the choicing so that the Aisha could catch up, Vamuke and his party stood in silence at the railings and watched as the Aisha, emptied of all men, yet still full of soul, silently slipped below the waves. In his own words, Vamuke wrote of the incident, quote, The loss of the brave little ship touched us deeply. Although our life on board had been anything but comfortable, we nevertheless all fully realized that it was to the Aisha we owed our liberty, unquote. From their departure from the Direction Island to their boarding of the Choicing, the landing party of the Emden had sailed the Aisha for just over 1,700 nautical miles, a great feat considering how unseaworthy the vessel had been, and a testament to the skill of the crew. Although heartbroken, the Germans could not mourn for long. The Choicing, now under command of von Mucke, the highest-ranking officer on board, was still alone at sea and privy to falling under Allied attack. They'd have to keep moving, but to where von Mucke did not know. Returning to Tsingtao was out of the question, 
and Von Muke didn't know of anywhere else to go. As he racked his brain, the original merchant crew of the Choicing came to his aid with fresh intelligence. The long-decaying Ottoman Empire had recently entered the war on the side of the Central Powers, and was now an ally of Germany. Though it was unknown whether or not the Ottoman ports had been seized by the British, they were the Germans' only choice. Pointing the Choicing to the northwest, Von Muke aimed her for the Arabian Peninsula, and so they set off once again. Conquering thousands of nautical miles, the Choicing pressed through thundering storms and crashing waves, all the while dodging a multitude of British patrols. The Emden may have been sunk, but the eyes were still wary. Succeeding in her mission, the Choicing reached the southern edge of the Arabian Peninsula, passing through the Straits of Bab al-Mandeb and entering the Red Sea in early January, 1915. But as they passed through the Straits, they caught sight of a French cruiser in the distance, an indicator that the Allies had blockaded the Strait to curtail Ottoman shipping. Facing potential capture should they sail any further, the landing party disembarked the Choicing, loaded up into its dinghies, and rowed ashore. Now making their way by foot, they made friends with local tribesmen who excitedly escorted them into the port town of Hodeida, located in modern-day Yemen. There, the sailors tried to arrange passage back to Germany with Turkish officials, but were met with mixed results. Unable to make any progress through diplomatic means, Bamuke instead chose to take matters into his own hands. Taking what supplies he did receive from Turkish officials, he and his sailors struck out northbound overland, but hit with a number of diseases, were forced back to Hodeida. Facing an inhospitable inland advance, the only option was to again take to the sea, their freedom banking on the successful running of the Allied blockade. Acquiring two small dows, small Arab sailing vessels, the Germans shot out from Hodeida and rode the wind north, racing between Allied warships, too fast to catch and too inconspicuous to draw attention. Tragedy struck, however, near the Farisan Islands, where one of the dows struck a reef and quickly sank. After picking the men out of the water, the now overlain single dhow made landfall at the nearest beach, and the Germans again attempted to cross the desert on foot. In this way, they reached the town of Al-Confida in late March. Avoiding the Allied blockade at sea, the Germans marched overland and continued to move north along the coast, slowly but surely making their way north to the town of Jeddah. They came close to disaster when, out of nowhere, Vamuke and his men were ambushed by a party of 300 Bedouin tribesmen, paid for by British gold and equipped with British rifles. As shots rang out and bullets cut through the air, Von Muke hurriedly ordered his men to take defensive actions. Though but sailors, the Germans could handle their weapons well and inflicted devastating casualties on the attacking Bedouins, laying into them with precision rifle fire from behind the corpses of fallen pack animals and hastily dug trenches. Forcing the enemy back time and again and fighting for their very survival, the Germans held out under siege for a total of three days in open terrain, losing three brave sailors to enemy fire. Having killed an unknown number of attacking Bedouins but finding themselves dangerously low on ammunition, the Germans were eventually relieved by the personal army of the Emir of Mecca, who had wished to greet Von Muke and his sailors in person. Word of the Emden survivors had already begun to travel the world over, and it would have been a shame to lose such intrepid men to the desert. Once in Jeddah, the Germans were treated well as royal guests. Von Muke, however, was not too trustful of the Emir, and, roughly familiar with the Ottoman-Arab relationship and not wanting to be caught up in local power politics, knew it was best that they leave as soon as possible. Under the cover of darkness, the Germans arranged for dows from the port to be used for their escape, and, in the middle of the night, the sailors did what they did best, hurling themselves into the sea and racing north until they reached the coastal town of El Weg. Having reached El Weg, they were supplied with camels from the locals and rode inland, reaching the train station of Alua after a comparatively quiet and uneventful trip. Word of their travels having preceded them, upon their arrival they were greeted by German diplomats and an Ottoman military detachment, already standing guard over a waiting train. Its destination? Constantinople. Though they had lost 11 men at the hands of malnutrition, exposure, disease, and combat, the surviving sailors of the Emden's landing party were now one train ride away from Europe. 
traveling by rail northwards through the Ottoman realm. At every stop, the sailors received copious amounts of food, drink, and perhaps best of all, mail from home. Along the way, each of the men was issued an iron cross, the highest military ward in the German Empire, a testament to each man's courage and bravery. Passing through Damascus, Aleppo, and Ankara, they finally, at long last, reached the great city of Constantinople. There, they fell in before Vice Admiral Wilhelm Sauchon, a German naval hero who, after having made a name for himself at the outbreak of the war against both the British and the Russian navies in the Black Sea, had been appointed Commander-in-Chief of the Ottoman Navy and Chief of all German Mediterranean operations. The journey of von Mucke and the landing party, from Tsingtao to Direction Island with the Emden, and from Direction Island to Constantinople by themselves, had taken them across many thousands of miles of perilous ocean, hundreds of miles of unforgiving land, and under constant attack from both the elements and mankind alike. For ten whole months they had nothing to turn to but each other. And now, though the world was still at war, they, at least, were finally safe. On May 23, 1915, First Lieutenant Helmuth von Mucke, with his sailors behind him, reported in to Admiral Sauchon. I report the landing squad from the Emden. Five officers, seven petty officers, and thirty men strong. Now, with all hands accounted for, it is here where we can finally close the book on the tale of the SMS Emden. Finally back home after his arduous voyage, Helmuth von Mucke spent the rest of the war penning two accounts of his journey, titled The Emden and the Aisha, covering, respectively, his time on the two ships. Publishing the books in 1915, that very same year he settled down and married an American orphan living in Germany by the name of Carla. Together, they had three sons and three daughters between the years of 1918 and 1938. Jaded by the outcome of World War I, in 1920, von Mucke joined the brand new National Socialist German Workers' Party, better known as the Nazi Party. Within their ranks he found decent political success, but became disillusioned with the party. Opposed to both Hitler's ideals and cult of personality, von Mucke left the Nazi party in 1929 and embraced pacifism, writing and lecturing against the Nazis until 1936, when he was imprisoned as a warning to cease his dissentious behavior. Attempting to rejoin the German navy at the outbreak of World War II, he was turned away for his questionable loyalty to Hitler's regime. Denied by the Navy, von Mucke was later thrown into a concentration camp near Hamburg for those same questionable loyalties. But, regarded as a national hero by the camp's head official, he was released on account of ill health in 1940 and settled in Schleswig-Holstein along the German border with Denmark. In 1943, his eldest son and namesake was lost in combat on the Eastern Front, something that served to only increase his convictions in pacifism. Continuing his fight as an activist for peace well beyond the war, he opposed West German rearmament up until his death of a heart attack in 1957. He was 76 years old. Scooped up by Australian forces after his defeat, Karl von Müller was sent to Fort Verdala on the island of Malta, where he had remained in captivity for approximately two years. On October 8, 1916, von Müller was separated from the rest of the Emden's prisoners on the island and moved to a POW camp in England built specifically for officers, now part of the University of Nottingham. Leading to prison break in 1917, he and 21 other men attempted to escape the prison camp via an underground tunnel, going so far as to make it into the immediate countryside before getting recaptured by English authorities. Back in the camp, while Müller was continually plagued by bouts of malaria he had originally picked up while posted in the east. Believing the malarial flare-ups were caused by the English climate, he was eventually sent to the Netherlands for treatment as part of a humanitarian agreement. In October 1918, one month before war's end, he was repatriated to Germany. Once back in Germany, von Müller was awarded the Pour les Mérites, one of the highest awards within the German Empire, for his actions as the commanding officer of the Emden. Retiring from the Navy in 1919, he refused to write any books of his experiences and chose instead to live a quiet life in the city of Brunswick. He passed away suddenly on March 11, 1923, 
likely weakened by his long struggle with frequent malarial bouts. He was only 49 years old. Lying on the beach of North Keeling Island, the SMS Emden spent the remainder of the war slowly breaking apart, worn down over time by the incessant waves crashing into her remains. By 1919, she had almost completely broken up and had become entirely submerged, finally meeting the watery grave that Carl von Müller had done so much to avoid. Broken up on site for salvage in the 1950s, parts of her skeleton still remain to this day scattered throughout the area just offshore of North Keeling's soft sandy beach. Today, honoring her legacy, one of the Emden's 10.5 centimeter guns, her bell, a magnificent stern ornament, are kept on display in the Australian War Memorial, the final remnants of an incredible ship. The story of the SMS Emden is a story of her captain and crew, one that deserves to be remembered. As always, it was our honor to cover such a daring group of men, and if you think this episode was at least half decent, please don't forget to follow, like, subscribe, and rate us 5 stars on your favorite podcasting platform. Make sure to tune in next time, where we trade our sailor's cap for an entrenching tool, and throw ourselves back into World War I and into the trenches with the Czechoslovak legions. Don't forget to share us with all your friends, and we'll see you next time on Expedition History. Hello, Expeditionaries. This is Michael Ciccarelli-Walsh, here to shamelessly plug my new podcast, The Mediocre Writer, where we talk about all things writing. And make sure to tune in next week, where I'll be interviewing your host, Vernon Corbin, on telling history's greatest stories. We'll see you there.